Hey, this is Ron Keel, the Metal Cowboy from the Ron Keel Band, Steeler and Keel. I like a little shot of whiskey and a lot of rock and roll with my coffee. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Coffee Show. The best part of waking up is rock and roll in your cup. Episode 44 of the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show with Joe and Nick. I am Joe, along with Nick. Tonight we have a great guest for you. But before we get into that, if you want to go ahead and please subscribe to the show on whichever platform you're listening to, that will ensure you get updates of our new episodes that are posted every Friday morning. Tonight's guest, Nick, is Greg Chason. Nice. Badlands. Didn't he start off with like Steeler or something like that? I think he did uh, have a small little, you know, yeah. was with Ron Keel for a little bit in Steel, right. correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's too bad uh, Badlands wasn't around that long because they were a great band. One of my faves, you know. I know. I remember you really liked them. Yeah. You, uh, didn't you do a cover of one of their songs? Highwire, yeah. Yeah, yeah we did, that's right. We did, that's right. Yeah, yeah, we did Highwire. So we're going to talk to Greg tonight and uh, maybe learn some history about Badlands and uh, see his musical journey in his career. Cool. Please be sure to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us at R&R Coffee Show. Also visit us on the web at www.rnrcoffeeshow.com and uh, sign up on our mailing list there. Hello? Hey, Greg. Yeah. Hey, buddy. It's Joe and Nick with the Rock and Roll Coffee Show. How are you? I'm Dandy. How are you doing? We are doing fantastic. How's it going, Greg? Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Can you hear us okay? Yeah. All right. All right. We had some uh, little bit of uh, technical issues before we called you, so I just want to make sure everything's good. Everything sounds good to me. Let me let me find something to put my phone on so I can... Uh... Hang on one second. Yeah, no worries. What do we have in here that's... Let's see. Oh, this will work. This will work just fine. All right, so you're in South Carolina, huh? How'd you know that? It says Myrtle. <laughs> it says yeah. Myrtle, whatever it says. Myrtle, Myrtle Beach? Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. You ever been here? I have. It's not bad. I can't complain. I think we played there when I was in Badlands. Maybe, maybe. Nick is down in Florida right now. So we're doing the uh, intercontinental phone call here? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> we don't mess around. Where are you at in Florida? <laughs> I live in uh, Port Charlotte. It's on the West Coast, maybe a 100 miles south of Tampa. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Nick and I grew up together down there, and uh, we were just talking before we called you about how awesome it is that you're uh, chatting with us this evening, because back in the day, you know, I play bass, Nick plays guitar, and we used to share a warehouse together, and uh, 
Nick used to love Badlands, and his Badlands, band used to cover yeah. High Wire. High Wire. Oh, okay. My, uh, that album was probably one of the best albums of the 80s, I think, in, in my opinion. <clears throat> well, I, I, I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was uh, yeah. that first album, man. Kudos to that album. Yeah, that was a great album. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those kind of records that uh, ends up being like uh, a lot of bands' first record, you know, like the first Montrose record or, you know, on and on and on, uh, where it's like, oh, okay. And then, you know, you have to try to follow it, which, you know, I think we did. But a lot to a lot of people, the pinnacle of our, you know, success was that first record. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this, Greg. So you've been playing for a long time. When did you get your start playing bass? Uh, I started out playing the summer of 1971. Um, some guys asked me to join their band. And uh, I never played or anything, but they wanted me to be in their band because I was a couple years older than them. And there were some guys picking on them. Everyone hung around by the ball fields in the summer where little league was and they were getting picked on because they're long hair. So they figured if they asked me to be in their band, I was kind of like the neighborhood hard ass. All right. Uh, that, that would get them, you know, keep them from being picked on. I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> he just approached me and said, Hey, if you buy a bass, you could be in our band. And so I went and bought a bass at the pawn shop and, uh, did that for probably around six or seven months. And then the guitar player moved to uh, to uh, New Mexico, and that's when I we were here in Phoenix. And under the, and he said, "Look, I'm going to be moving back in a couple of years, so keep playing your bass. When we get back, we get a band." I never touched the bass one time after he left. But I was he he'd write me a letter or call me and say, Are "You playing your bass?" I, oh yeah, sure, yeah, yeah I'm playing all the time. <laughs> And Every I, day, I think he's coming back. Then I and I say, yeah, I got a bunch of guys. They want to be in a band. We're going to start a band as soon as you get back here. I was full of crap. <laughs> <laughs> then out of the blue, he says, "Hey, he's I'm moving back. back in a month." <laughs> oh I no, went, crap! <laughs> so I had to find. I found a couple guys. I found a drummer, and I found a guy that uh, said he could sing, and he couldn't. <laughs> but he, we could rehearse at his house, and his mom would buy him a PA, so that was good enough. And I hurried up and learned some songs, and then we st he moved back, and we started a band. And from that point on, I played. I was pretty serious about it. Did you just so they asked you to go buy a bass, and you bought one? Did you just pick it up naturally, or I mean, no, no. I mean, I went went to the pawn shop and bought some piece of junk bass. The action was about six feet off the neck. I mean, oh, you could literally stand, you put your head in between the strings and the fretboard. <laughs> Strengthen the and uh, it's like a sixty dollar base or a seventy dollar base, but I didn't know anything. It was made. It was made by a, a Japanese company called Crown. I wish I still had it, just because, <laughs> just just because. Yeah. And uh, it was him. It was a guitar player and a drummer, and they didn't even know any songs all the way through. They knew parts of songs. So you know, being in the seventies, they would show me a part of a Grand Funk song or a part of a Humble Pie song. Or, part of this or part of that part of your right heap song and then we would play these parts of songs right and i mean the very first time i played it i i remember telling the guitar player I, this is what i'm going to do because i was supposed to go to college to play baseball but i didn't want to go to college right in my playing baseball but i didn't want to go to college 
Yeah. And so I decided on that first day that I, instead of being a baseball player, I would be a musician and uh, having no clue what that entailed. And so who, uh, so who are they some just of your influences? Stuff, but I mean, it was in the, you know, the, it was in the sev- early 70s and the bass players were different than they were, say, in the 80s or even now. Yeah. So there was a lot of really, you know, excellent, great melodic bass players to try to emulate. And a lot of the songs we played, parts of, those bands had great bass players. So I would listen to what these great bass players were doing. And I'd say, God dang it. I know this is on this bass somewhere. I just can't figure out where it is. So I was determined to learn how to, you know, play the, that 70s style of bass that I still play today. Yeah. Um, you know, even at that early time, it just something along on the A string didn't really amuse me. I wanted to be able to play the bass solo in Mr. Big by free without knowing how to play the bass, which of course yeah. didn't it, work all that didn't work. <laughs> what what were uh, some of your influences influences? Um well Metal Shocker from Grand Funk would have been a big influence. Uh Tim Bogert, who just recently passed away from Cactus and Big uh, Beck Bogert a piece was one of my main influences. Uh Martin Turner from Wishbone Ash, Gary Thane from Uriah Heep. John Entwistle from The Who is my main guy. Uh, Felix Papillardi from Mountain, Andy Fraser and Free, yada, yada, yada. Just yeah, all yeah. those kind of guys that uh, Greg Ridley and Humble Pie. Right. All those guys kind of played that very kind of melodic, busy, um, almost approached it as a guitar, if you will, as opposed to just... Uh, you know, pedaling on the E or pedaling on the A, they would do melodic lines that were like almost counterpoints to uh, what else was going on in the music. And that always interested me, interested me. And um, that's kind of the approach that I took. It's the same approach. I, like I said, I still play that way today. And when I first got in Badlands, that was the thing with me and Jake is he could say, you know, he could start playing some obscure song by some band from the 70s and I'd know the bass line. Right, right. And so, because he's kind of a child of the 70s, if you will, same as I. Mm-hmm. So, there was just a lot of really great bass players to be influenced by. Every band that I liked had a guy that played like that. So, I always say that I'm like a uh, kind of an amalgamation of about 20 different players. Um, sure. And and I'm, I don't really play like any of them but I play a little bit like all of them. Even guys like Rob Grange, who played in Ted Nugent, um, especially the early Ted Nugent Amboy Duke stuff. Uh, Jimmy Randall, who played in Jojo Gunn. There's a whole bunch of guys. There's a band called Lucifer's Friend, kind of obscure band from Germany. And they had a bass player named Dieter Horns, who was completely insane. And I play like him or a little bit like Geezer, uh, a little like John Paul Jones, all those guys. So, Mm. So what was the band that, what band was that, that you were in first? <laughs> the first band I was in had a fantastic name called the Screaming Hogmires. <laughs> I like, I like that, that name. name. Well, yeah. And I don't know what it meant. That's the band that just knew parts of songs. And then when the guy got back from uh, New Mexico and we started a band for real with the singer, we were called uh, Ghost Rose. 
Gross, like gross, ghost okay. and then a rose r-o-s-e right which i really like the name it was a very hippie name but just i still like the name to this day it's one of my favorite band names it's kind of a kind of has its own little kind of vision to it and and so uh those th- that would have been the first real band that actually did gigs was ghost rose and then eventually that band changed it na- its name to saint michael named after michael shanker and uh guitar player was a big Michael Shanker freak. Yes, so. and uh, and then on and on. Uh-huh, so yeah. Uh-huh. So when now you had a band Surgical Steel in there somewhere. Yeah, I did. Where, when was that? After or before? Uh, that would have been in the late seventies, uh, late seventies or early eighty. Um, okay. The uh, the guitar player in that band, Jim Keeler, who was my best friend at the time. Uh, he and I started the band. I came up with the name because heavy metal, that new wave of British heavy metal was really kind of going. And I was really influenced by that, as were a lot of musicians at that time. So we wanted something that supposedly surgical steel is one of the hardest steels that there is. And so uh, we came up with that name and we were kind of like a cross early on between like vintage priest, uh-huh. you know, talking like uh, pre- Pre point of entry, uh, uh. and then early Iron Maiden because um, while I'm not influenced so much by Steve Harris because I'd already kind of was playing the way that I played, I playing Iron Maiden songs gave me a, a outlet to you know overplay the same way Steve Harris does uh. and the same way I do to this day. Uh-huh. Were you guys wearing uh, the leather and the spikes? Oh yeah, we, we <laughs> and that was quite an art here. We we would play in the summer. We would do a lot of outdoor gigs. We played at a, a battle of the bands out on a lake on Memorial Day. And we wore all our leather pants and our leather jackets and studs. And it was 113 degrees out. And I, my, uh, it was kind of my band. And I wanted everyone to dress that way. They wanted to wear shorts. I said, look, if we go out here and we dress like the way we do if we're playing a regular gig, people will know that we're committed or possibly should be committed and they will know that we're serious and um the talk will get around and sure enough after we did that gig all of a sudden our attendance like quadrupled at every gig we did and then even more so because you know we were really we were kind of the first real heavy metal band here in phoenix at that time and uh you know by dressing that way and kind of living the lifestyle it really kind of opened a lot of people's eyes. And then, of course, uh, we met Rob Halford at that time, and he would uh, come to our gigs, and he would come on stage and sing with us, which, nice. you know, once, once you know, the metal god is getting on stage with some local band in Phoenix, your credibility goes right through the roof. Sure. Oh, yeah. Is, that, is any of that out online anywhere where people can hear No, it? that was pre-online, unfortunately. Too bad because now there'd be tons of it. Everybody and their brother would have a camera. Yeah, yeah. The funny thing is, we used to play these gigs um, at this place called PC Warehouse. A guy it was in in the middle of Phoenix. This guy owned a place that made paper that you put on like uh, when you're masking, taping uh, to paint a wall or a car or whatever. And Mm -hmm. he manufactured the paper, so he would make a big stage on these rolls of paper that were like four feet, five feet high. He had a big PA and every week, every Saturday night, he would have a concert back there. 
and you know with some kegs of beer and how we got away with it i don't know but uh he was a good friend of mine so we played there quite a bit and uh we had met halford my guitar player jim keeler had met halford at a club um at a, a rock club and he called me up and he said hey uh it was right around the time of the jerry cooney larry holmes fight mm-hmm. and he said hey are you gonna have the fight on you know pay-per-view and I said, yeah, me and my roommate were always having the boxing matches on. He said, you care if I bring someone over? And I said, well, who is it? And he said, Rob Halford. <laughs> I said, yeah, right. I said, yeah, while you're at it, you know, bring Jimi Hendrix and, uh, you know, why don't you bring Led Zeppelin along with you? <laughs> he goes, no, really, I'm bringing, I'm bringing Rob Halford. And I'm like, yeah, right, bite me. So sure enough, that night, that, that next night, we, there was about 25 people at my house and Keeler shows up with Rob Halford. Oh, way. Yeah, I was like, whoa, crap. You no, really you are off <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> Jeff Martin was there, you know, the singer from Surgical Steel, who eventually became the drummer in Badlands. He's a big Halford freak. And he, he like, almost passed out. I mean, I Rob Halford was his, was his idol. So uh, we didn't even tell him. I didn't even tell anyone that Rob might be coming over because I didn't believe that he would. Yeah, of course. Who so would? we ended up becoming kind of friends with him that night. And he, you know, we're telling him about the band. And he said, well, you know, I'd like to see you guys play. So I called up this guy, uh, Danny Poole, that owned the PC Warehouse. And I said, hey, we want to play tomorrow night. Uh, actually, it was a Saturday night. And, and uh, he said, I got a band already. I said, I don't care. Uh, we'll open for them. Let us play. And so the rumor got around that Rob Halford was going to be at this gig. And so like a thousand people showed up at this, which normally there'd be maybe 300. Right. So like a thousand people or more showed up and half of them came to see if Rob Halford would be there. And half of them came to laugh at us when Rob Halford didn't show up. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, after we'd done our regular set and we did uh, mostly covers, a few originals, we announced Halford and he came on stage and sang with us and people just lost their minds. Although there were a few people that are saying that's not really Rob Halford. That's a, that's a, that's an imitator. Yeah. But uh, yeah, again, so it was a, it was a really cool time here in Phoenix at that time. I, I mean, I had the first heavy metal band. We were all like really tight friends have Rob Halford. I mean, I got to hear uh, what's the, which, uh, when screaming for vengeance, I got to hear that uh, just a cassette tape of that before it was even released. I got to hear the, awesome. the mixes, the mixes, and so we were actually playing Judas Priest songs in Surgical Steel off of that record. We were playing like Electric Eye and Screaming for Vengeance before Priest ever played them live. Nice, because he gave us the tape, and so we learned a couple of songs. And he came back to Phoenix one time, to, and he came on stage to play with us. And sure enough, we launched into "You Got Another Thing Coming." He's like, <laughs> "You guys already learned this?" So he sang it with us. He called Tipton, and he said, "I just sang you got another thing coming with a local band here in Phoenix." And Glenn's, Glenn was like, well, we've never even played that live yet. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. That's Fun an time. awesome story. Yeah. Then so, they kicked me out, the bastards. Sons of bitches. <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> yeah, because I wanted to go to L.A. I, I wanted us to go to L.A. and play. Um, I went to L.A. That, we had a song on the first Metal Blade record, uh, first or the second Metal Massacre, uh-huh. and uh, a song called Rivet Head. And so when we went to bring the the uh masters over to brian slagle um we went to the whiskey and saw some bands and i realized that as good as we were we weren't as professional as these bands were 
And so I, I figured if we were going to really compete on a national level, we had to go there and play and they didn't want to go. They liked being the exact quote was, we just want to be a big fish in a little pond. And, and my thing was, look, dude, our shelf life is very limited, maybe a year or two at the most before, you know, I said, we still play in Phoenix, but let's go there. We were offered a show at the country club, which is a great venue in Reseda that all the national acts played there, like on their first tours of the States, like Queensryche and, uh, except mm-hmm. Bay. And I'd played there a number of times in Steeler when I eventually moved to LA, but they didn't want to go. And, um, Alan Nevin, who was managing Dawkin at the time, sure. and Great Great White, he wanted to manage us. Don Dawkin was going to produce our demo. I was pushing very hard for us to go do it, and they just got tired of me pushing, and they kicked me out. Unfortunately, they kicked out the main songwriter as well, so that kind of left them. Their whole musical direction kind of changed into like a cross between Judas Priest meets Poison. When, when was this? Early 80s? Yeah, I moved to L.A. They kicked me out in, like, the summer of 82. And I moved to L.A. I had a couple friends I'd met from, you know, doing the Metal Blade thing. Uh, I moved over in October of 82. So did did Jeff follow you out there? Because he ended up out there with Razor X, right? Yeah, not for a while. Um, He came out. He... um, he did the Racer X record, and then he moved out. I don't know what year that would have been. It might have been 85 or 86. Okay. Okay. So I mean, him, later. for a while, I wasn't friends with any of them. And then Jeff and I kind of reconnected. And, you know, I kind of, I was playing in Steeler at that point in L.A. And at, when I was in Steeler, we were the biggest band in L.A. I mean, bands that were signed would open for us when we played. And we played all the time. We played all the best places. And it was a great band to be in. Um, it was right before it ended, he, you know, and he turned it into Keel. Right. So, I mean, Surgical Steel was playing at, you know, roller rinks or ice skating rinks. And, you know, I was playing at Perkins Palace or at the Palace or at the Country Club or Santa Monica Civic opening for Rat on New Year's Eve. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I was doing these really great gigs. And so it was kind of, seemed kind of stupid to be mad at these guys for kicking me out. I actually should have went over and shook their hand. Sure. Because it eventually nothing ever happened with them um you know jeff moved to la it they just kind of fizzled into different bands that were good bands and it's not that they weren't a good band it's just that they didn't have enough foresight you know they didn't see the big picture and i'm a i'm a big picture sort of guy i'm always looking at really what all the options are when you're doing it and they just couldn't see that and you know they did me a favor, you know, in hindsight, if I had stayed in L.A. because I wanted to, I mean, stayed in Phoenix, I, I was like, look, OK, I'll quit pushing. Let me stay in. I still want to be in the band. Yeah. Well, Nothing would have happened. I, I mean, they had a couple potential record deals that didn't happen for whatever reason. And um, so you were with with Steeler, with Ron and Ingve was in there at the time, right? No, he was out by then. Oh, he was already out. OK. So they'd had, they'd had, it was Ingbe, then they'd had another guy named Mitch Perry, who mm-hmm. is a well-known guy, a friend of mine as well. Yeah. And then Ron was retooling the whole band. Well, that's why I wanted and, to ask about when Ron, when he went off and did Keel, you, were you going to follow him with that or was that not an option? What happened was, uh, Ron, Steeler had kind of run its course. Uh, we had 
had, you know, we had to had had done live showcases for every label more than once and probably more than twice. And for some reason, um, we couldn't get a deal with it. And um, I mean, we wrote great songs. Ron and I wrote a lot of really good songs together. And so he was going to possibly be in Black Sabbath. He he had right. sent a tape to be in Black Sabbath and and at, they were interested in him for a couple minutes. And uh, so I was like, at the same time, I'd been contacted by Lieber and Krebs, who was managing Michael Schenker Group at the time, and they had seen me play in L.A., and they wanted to know if I was interested in joining Michael Schenker. And I'm like, yeah, sign me up. Saint Michael. So Ron, Ron was going to do Sabbath, and I was going to join Schenker for the, I think the album they were doing at the time was Assault Attack, or maybe it was right after that, I can't remember. So I was thinking, no, what? Uh, no, it was Built to Destroy. That was the record. And the one where he's smashing a flying V on the car. Yeah. And so I, I was thinking, okay, well, at that time, Ron didn't get the Sabbath gig. Apparently, the tape he sent them, there was a singer on, some other singer was on the other side. So while Black Sabbath thought they were listening to Ron, they were actually listening to another singer. And <laughs> they actually liked that other singer, I guess, better than Ron. So that didn't go anywhere. And then at that point, Shanker had some kind of breakdown. And that tour wasn't going to happen, so I wasn't going to get to be in the band. So all of a sudden, you know, Ron decides to start Keel, which is fine. He didn't ask me to be in it, but he did ask me to help him find musicians. So I found his drummer, Dwayne, who's a Phoenix guy. I, I brought my brother Kenny in, and his guitar player, Brian Jay, was my roommate. Okay. And, and so Ron and I were still friends. And I, I think one of the reasons I wouldn't have been in Keel is because Ron wanted the whole thing to be focused on him. Keel, he would do all the interviews. He would be the main guy. Sure. And that, that wasn't going to happen with me. When I joined Steeler, I said, here's the deal. You and I, we go 50, 50 on everything. Mm -hmm. If there's, there's photo shoots, I'm in it. If we're doing interviews, I'm in it. If we're writing songs, we're writing them together. And he agreed to all that. Mm -hmm. Plus I was a completely different kind of bass player than what your average 80s LA bass player was. I was still playing like freaking Tim Bogart. Yeah. And and the fact that Ron was uh, when I when I went and played with Ron, I met him by helping him audition guitar players. I knew the drummer that he had and I just played whatever I played and Ron asked me to be in the band. I said, "Dude, this is how I play." So if you're looking for some AC/DC sort of thing, this is not what yeah, I do. I'm like you're there's bass lines and i i'm i don't not only don't i follow the rules i've never even seen the book that the rules are written. <laughs> right, right and he agreed to all that i mean much to his credit and it actually gave me kind of like a platform in la to kind of base the start of my la career on so you know he put together keel it was a good band i mean you know some of those i wrote some songs on those first couple keel records yeah i was a keel fan we had ron on the show actually he was he's yeah, a ron, nice guy he's a good guy we we have a little difference opinion on how come i've never received a friggin' royalty check <laughs> uh-oh uh but other than other than that we're good yeah <laughs> But, you know, Keel was a great platform for my brother, Kenny. Uh, my, him and I are very close. And um, and he got to have his career. And to be perfectly honest, uh, Badlands, which came along later, like 88-ish, end of 87, beginning of 88, I may not have 
been able to be in that band if I had been in Keel because um, I don't know whether any of the producers they had making those Keel records would have wanted me to dumb down the way that I played my bass. Right. And I wouldn't have been willing to do that. I would have said, eh, bite me and right. moved on. Yeah. Now, my brother Kenny, who played bass on, I don't know, the first five or six records, he got to play some good stuff and he's a really good melodic bass player, but I'm even more over the top than he is. And the way that I hear things is different than a lot of guys do. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether, you know, if I had been in Keel, I wouldn't have been going to audition for Ozzy. Yeah. I was going to say, I, that's how you met Jake, that's right? How you met Jake. That's how I met Jake. And yeah. we kind of hit it off right out of the gate. And as a matter of fact, him and I were texting last night. We're still really good friends. Um, you should have brought him on here with you. Yeah, yeah that, <laughs> I, I think Jake's in the hibernation mode from the whole uh, music business thing at the moment until yeah. COVID, COVID gets done. I know he had a tour that got canceled. So I think when Jake, when there's nothing going on, I think Jake's pretty, pretty happy to just kind of kick back. Sure. You know, when things kick off again, he'll be right there. But I would have never auditioned for Ozzy, which means I wouldn't have met him. And through the whole time while he was an Aussie till Badlands, him and I would talk all the time. And when he would be off the road, we would go hang out. He'd come over to my house for dinner or him and I'd go, he, we're both gearheads. So we'd go do the car thing and all that kind of stuff. So that may not have, you know, that may not have happened. And the fact that he'd seen me play when I auditioned for Aussie, he already knew that he liked kind of my seventies offshoot sort of brand of bass playing. When, so how did you get the audition, audition with Ozzy? Is that something you, like, was there a, a call for bass players or did that something? What happened was, was after the, when they were going to do uh, The Ultimate Sin, they were looking for a bass player. So they went on uh, MTV when they used to actually have music right. and uh, said, hey, we're looking for a bass player. Um, send in your, you know, your tape, your audio tape. At the time, it was cassettes because there was no CDs yet. Sure. And uh, your package in a photo. And I wasn't going to do it because I thought, well, that ain't going to happen. So um, uh, Ross Halfin, uh, the photographer Ross Halfin, uh, and uh, who's like Death Leopards and Iron Maidens and all these bands from the new wave of heavy metal, British heavy metals photographer, him and I were really good friends. We'd met when I was in Steeler when he did some photo shoots with us. So when he would come into LA, we would hang out. He said, you got, you got to do this. And I said, I'm not doing this. And then Bobby Blosser from rat, a drummer from rat was also my, one of my best friends. And he'd say, dude, you got to do it. Mm -hmm. So I put together, I had a photo and I put together a bio and I put together a crappy little tape on a cassette of me playing into my ghetto blaster without an amp. So <laughs> right up to the mic, <laughs> right up to the mic. and just, <laughs> playing away uh there was a song going on in the background and me playing bass on it so it's the you know a lot of these guys are going and making like five thousand dollar recordings and going and doing pro photo shoots and i just put together something because i didn't think i was going to hear from anybody right so lo and behold i get a phone call and yeah and my wife's uh well, my girlfriend at the time now my wife she says hey, you got a phone call so, and it's some, it's some woman from england and I, I get the phone and I said, yes, Greg, she goes, hello, Greg, this is Sharon Osborne. And we've got your package and we really like it. We'd like to fly you. You know, we'd like you to come and audition for Ozzy. And I said, 
Fuck, fuck you, Blosser. <laughs> Someone I else was, messing with you. Just like I thought it was Blosser. So I hung up on her. Oh, no. So she calls back. And she says, hey, Greg, we, we got cut off. This is Sharon Osborne. And I, this ain't funny, Bobby. And I hung up <laughs> on her again. So she calls back and she says, you know, hey, this really is Sharon Osborne. And if you hang up on me again, I'm not going to call you back. And I went, oh. So she said, uh, I want you to, you know, we want you to come and audition. I thought they were auditioning in L.A. And she, I said, well, OK. I said, where, when and where? She goes, well, we're going to fly you to London. And I said, oh, I don't like flying. And I didn't think I was going to get the gig. So I said, yeah. I said, I don't know. I've never really been to. I said, I've been to London, which I hadn't. <laughs> and I said, I don't really like it there which I hadn't been there. She said, well, you're only going to be there for long enough to change flights. You're going to be, cause then we're going to fly you up to uh, Inverness, Scotland. And I said, Inverness, is that by Loch Ness? And she says, yeah, it's right by there. I said, I'll go, I'll come to your audition, Sharon. Here I am. Nobody, by the way, I'll come to your audition. <laughs> if someone will take me to see the Loch Ness monster. <laughs> then she said, okay. So I flew up there. I flew to London which I was petrified. Uh, and then we got on a smaller plane and flew to Inverness. Oh, geez. And I was there for 21 days. And that's where I met Jake and eventually met Ozzy. Randy Castillo was the drummer. And sure enough, they took me to see uh, Loch Ness. I didn't get to see the damn monster, damn but I got to go. He was hiding out that day, but it was a really cool trip. And I, out of the, they got something like, I don't know, 6,000, People sent in their tapes and they'd picked seven. Wow. And mine was the set. And each guy, Ozzy picked one. Uh, I think his, his, uh, his personal guy, uh, uh, Bobby, I can't remember his last name right now. Um, he just, he passed away not too long ago. He picked one, Sharon picked one, uh, maybe even Randy picked one and Jake picked one. And there was seven guys that got picked and Jake picked mine. Okay. And so they had seen six guys. I was the seventh guy. And I got up there and um, Ozzy wasn't there yet. And so I just kind of spent the first four or five days just jamming with Jake and Randy. And when Ozzy got up there, he did not think I had the correct look for, you know, it was the big hair 80s. Yeah, and yeah. Well, I, I had big hair and all that crap too, but he didn't think I had the correct I look like a, like a really rough looking dude. I mean, I've never been, a, I was an ugly baby. And, so, and you've been flying for the last 24 hours. Well, no, I was already <laughs> up there for about four or five days before he showed up. So he didn't think I had the right look. He loved my bass playing. He just didn't think I had the right look. Now, and did so, you, have, did you um, have to change your style of bass playing? That, what's that? Did you have to change your style of bass playing when you were playing with Ozzy there? No. No, I, I, I've never do that, but, but, you know, I play a little bit, again, one of the 20 guys that I play a little bit like is geezer, which he even noticed right, right off yeah. the bat. He goes, you kind of, he goes, Oh, I hear some geezer in there. And I said, Oh yeah. And so, um, I ended up not getting the gig and they ended up getting Phil Susan cause Phil had a, a song. He had the great look. Phil looks like a rock star. I look like a guy who is a bodyguard for rock stars <laughs> and uh which is what i was before i while i was in la i would go out and bodyguard for different guys and um 
he ended up, and he also had the song he had uh, shot in the dark. So oh, he ended yeah. up getting the gig. But Jake would always tell me whenever Ozzy would be mad at Phil, he'd say, "We should have kept the ugly guy." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fun. So yeah, it was a great trip. I mean, who, who gets to talk about going on audition for Ozzy for three weeks? And they paid me a time i didn't have much money they paid me like four thousand dollars when i was when they dropped me off to go fly back down to london to catch a flight back to the states they gave me like four grand i didn't know i was getting any money yeah yeah and you got to see loch ness four four thousand dollars all right right so it was it was a really cool experience and it makes for a great story (laughs) so then how long was it after that that you and jake hooked up to start badlands uh, well, like I said, we still stayed in touch. And then when he got removed from Mozzie or however that worked out, him and I were always in contact. He said, well, I'm going to start my own band. And I, and he didn't say, and you're going to be in it or anything. He, but I just always took him at his word that, you know, because he, he would always say, when I leave Ozzy, I'm going to start a band and, you know, I'd like you to be in it. And so he would say, um, I got to find a singer first. So once he hooked up with Ray and he knew Eric and Ray knew Eric. So the three of them got together and jammed and he really liked them. As a matter of fact, he played me the rehearsal tape from, uh, we got together the day after he goes, I want you to hear this. And he played me the tape with Ray and I, and I really liked it. He goes, what do you think? I said, man, this guy can freaking sing. I said, but you know what? This, this drummer's really good. He goes, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. So, then he tells me okay so we're going to audition bass players well i thought that i was going to just get the gig and so i was like everyone i knew you know there was a musician knew that jake and i were friends we'd been friends for at this point three or four years yeah and so i they all thought i was automatically going to be in jake's new band and so i was like man if i don't get the gig i'm gonna look like an idiot so I told him, I said, I'll tell you what, I, I don't want to come in an audition right off the bat. I said, just audition everyone that you want. And if you can't find anyone that you like, let me know and I'll come and audition. So he would audition guys and then he would call me and say, okay, you're going to come down now. I'd say, have you seen everyone? And he'd say, well, no, we got some more guys. I said, when you've seen them all, you don't like any of them. I'll come down. So after a while, he called me and said, okay, we've seen everybody. You're going to come down or not? <laughs> he was kind of pissed off at me. I said, yeah, I'll come down. And I went down, and uh, the rest is kind of uh, history. I mean, he already knew. I, I, You know, at the time, I didn't realize what he was doing. Uh, he always said, you know, he'd always tell me, I wanted you to have the gig straight off, but I wanted you to audition because I didn't want people to think you got the gig just because we were friends. I wanted people to know you got the gig because, you know, you're the man or whatever. And he goes, and I wanted Ray and Eric to kind of, you know, be on board with that as well, as opposed to Jake's band, Badlands was a band where, you know, the decisions were made fairly diplomatically. I mean, if, if something came to loggerheads jake would have the final say i never had a problem with any of that Mm -hmm. jake and i've always kind of been on the same page in a lot of ways regardless of the music or the songwriting or other things we're interested in whether it's cars or fighting or whatever Mm -hmm. we're into the we're into the same kind of thing so when he when jake would come up with i want to do this if the other guys didn't agree i usually always always agreed just because I did agree. That's just, mm-hmm. you know, 
Jake likes to take the road less traveled. So mm-hmm. do I. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I want to take it the hard way. I don't want to. I don't want it to be easy. I don't want it to be like, oh wow, we're millionaires. I want it to be like we, we're going to have to really struggle for our art. And I'd been doing that for my whole career, and I didn't see any reason to change. Then, and I think it made whatever successes that Badlands did have that much better because it wasn't easy. The record company hated us. We hated our manager, who hated us. Um, you know, there was a lot of acrimony inside our own camp. Uh, just with you know our original people that worked for us right. and when we were you know when we had whatever success we had it made it that much better because we had to kind of punch some people in the face to get it well let me ask you this so when you guys got together <clears throat> the four of you um and then went to sign your record deal w- were you not a fan of the deal at the time or i mean why did you guys not get along with the label um what happened was we were originally going to sign with, um, oh man, the guy that managed Cinderella, uh, and kiss for a while. I can't remember his name right now. Doggone it. It'll come to me when we're not talking. <laughs> we had agreed. We'd met with a number of people that wanted to manage us and a number of record companies and they were all interested. And, um, we had done a handshake deal with this guy. God dang it. I wish I could remember his name. Real nice guy. And at the last minute, Ray went back to New York before we finally agreed on everything. And he came back and the guy that was his kind of that overseed his career when he was with Lieber and Krebs, Paul O'Neill, had got to Ray and and convinced Ray that if he was our manager, he was with Sabotage, right? Yeah. Yeah. That he would. You know, everything would be groovy and and we would get a nice big, not only would we be on Atlantic, we would have our own custom label off of Atlantic that would have Atlantic's distribution called Titanium, blah, blah, blah. So when Ray came back, he didn't want to sign with um, the the Cinderella guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, He he was very adamant about um, us signing with Paul O'Neill and he brought and Paul O'Neill came back with him and he kind of pitched his his thing with us. And Jake and I didn't like Paul O'Neill right out of the gate, neither did Eric. I mean, he's, he was, I don't like to speak ill of the dead and mm-hmm. God rest his soul. It's just, he, something wasn't we right. Didn't believe, we didn't believe what he was saying. It's just, yeah. it, it's just, it was like, yeah, I don't know about this dude. You know what I mean? It's just, it was yeah. like, nah, right. I don't know. And so Jake and I actually went out so he could have a smoke and he said, what do you think? And I said, man, I'll tell you what. I said, rather than have Ray leave, I mean, sh- I'd sign with just about anyone to at least make this record. And he agreed. And so um, we went in and agreed to go with Paul O'Neill. And there were problems right out of the gate. You should never have your manager. Okay, kiddies. Band 101 from Greg. Never have your manager (laughs) own the record company. That is bad. And because now you have no control. The guy that's supposed to go fight with you at the record company about You know, they don't want to have any songwriters and they don't want to write a three minute single. They, you know, they, they don't want to wear, um, you know, spandex. They want to be, you know, the late 80s version of Zeppelin and set, whatever. All of a sudden, that guy's now part of the record company. Mm-hmm. So the guy that's supposed to go to bat with you or you is not. He's He's got his own. Because he owns part of the record company as well. So the, the partners in Titanium, which were Jason Flom, Andy Sesher from Hit Parader, and Paul O'Neill, we're fighting with our own manager 
who's supposed to be looking after our interests, but in reality, he's looking after his interests. Yeah. Was he trying to so get you guys to be a also, little more commercial? He also had a part of the, uh, the uh, booking agent, so that wasn't going good. So we ended up having to do like a clean break from everyone but the record company till after the second record where we did, because it was a, we made a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of other labels would have signed us. I mean, why wouldn't you? You had Jakey Lee, you had the best singer of his generation, Ray Gillen. Eric was a great drummer. There's no two ways about it. And Jeff is a great drummer as well. And then you had me channeling as many, channeling John Entwistle as much as I could. It was a musician sort of band and we had great songs. So, I mean, we could have signed with anyone. We signed with these guys. It ended up being a foobar all the way around. And it ended up just... We, we we weren't happy. They weren't happy. No, and they would come up with things they wanted us to do, and we'd say, "No, no, we're not doing that." So with with, with Ray Go bringing ahead. in with Ray bringing in Paul, I mean, was there tension between you guys right off the bat, bandmates? With Ray, yeah, oh, with Paul, with Ray. No, no, not really. I mean, at the time, Paul O'Neill did follow through on some of his stuff. We did get our own custom label. So we didn't know what that was going to entail, but we did get that. We were on the cover of some magazines right off the bat. We were in Hit Parader every month. Uh, so we were getting a lot of press. So some of the stuff that Paul O'Neill said came to fruition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were fine with that. But um, as things kind of, you know, as the first album was out and things weren't going the way that you know, these guys were all figuring, you know, all the people at Titanium, how many millions of records we're going to sell. Oh, mm-hmm. three million. Oh, I think they'll sell two million. I think they'll sell four million. And at the time we're going, uh, we just want to go on the road and, and play and see what play, happens. Yeah. So we didn't want the pressure of that. Hey, give me one second. Yeah. Hey, Jennifer, you got a, you got a uh, power cord here? In case my phone runs out of gas. Sorry, I'm getting my wife to get me a. No worries so i mean at first it seemed like it was okay and i mean i did still none of us like paul o'neill i mean ray didn't even really like him mm-hmm. he had he had a certain kind of oh man i feel bad saying he had a certain kind of greasy quality to him that didn't appeal to to really any of us yeah you know, once right in the end. you see it all right radio it's radio at its finest perfect um can you guys hear me yeah yeah so you know i hated him from the word go he couldn't have given a crap whether i caught on fire or not all he cared about was jake and ray and eric hated him for the same reason mm-hmm. and jake just hated him because he was he didn't appeal to us you know our sensibilities and ray just figured he was kind of a necessary evil and paul was kind of helping take care of them. And that was fine. As long as we were, you know, the band was still tight at that point. It was never an issue. It's just mm-hmm. that we didn't like Paul O'Neill right. or Jason, Jason Flom. We, we hated him just as much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you guys do the album. You did some tours. I saw you guys with, um, I want to say it was Tesla and great white. Was that, that, was it? It. that would be it. And then Nick, we saw them at uh, Janice landing with. Yeah. Enough's so, enough, right? Enough's enough. Yeah. Yeah. They opened, we, we did, we did about, a month worth of dates when, when Enough's Enough's record came out and they opened for us for about a month. Yeah, yeah. Great so, band. Ray, Ray got along really good with uh, Chip. Him and Chip were pretty tight. Yeah. They're, yeah. Enough's Enough are good guys. I like Donnie. Donnie's good really guys. Cool. Yeah, Donnie's a good guy. I mean, I got along with all of them. 
um, I was just happy to be on the road. And I enjoyed, the, you know, touring with Great White and Tesla. I mean, they treated us pretty well. And, and uh, you know, that? we were just the opening act for 45 minutes. <laughs> but you, know, you guys, big... you guys just kicked ass every time. I mean, the times well, I've seen you. There, you know what? Our whole deal was, look, Jake's got three Marshall Stacks and Chase Hunt's got nine, uh, eight, uh, I'm sorry, uh, where I have six SVT cabinets or, you know, eight by 10 cabinets. And we turned them up loud. We didn't have any backdrops or any crap. It's just, we did it old school. When we came out and just basically kicked as much ass as we could for 45 minutes to on the occasion when we got to play an hour and a half and had a damn good time doing it. There was no, there was no show from the perspective of, you know, the showbiz part of it. Our show was straight hard rock in your face the way they did it in the seventies. That's how we liked it. So, and that's how we did it. Yeah. And that was awesome. And we were louder than 128 (laughs) DB every night. Can you still hear what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually I, I can. And I, man, I enjoyed that. I mean, great white Tesla, they had sound men that made them have like very limited stage volume. And then everything came through the house. Yeah. And we, we had Night Bob. Night Bob used to be the sound man for Aerosmith and Kiss and Ted Nugent. And he believed in volume. Sure. And so we had friggin' stage volume. And uh, all the other bands that ever played with us, whether they opened or we were opening for them, would always come out and go, oh, my God. What? Oh, that sounds so great. How come we can't? I wish our sound man let us have stage volume like that. And I'd always go like, didn't the sound man work for you? <laughs> right. I mean, so we we always had copious amounts of volume, and I that's the way I like my rock. Jake's the same way to this day. I mean, Red Dragon Cartel is loud. I played in Red Dragon Cartel, did about 40 dates with them in 2014, mm-hmm. and while it wasn't Badlands loud, it's pretty damn loud. Yeah. Well, you got to get you got to feel it up there, you know. That's, that's the way it was done. That's yeah. the way rock is meant to be. It's not meant to have like in-ears and, you know, you're, you're a fly gig. It's meant to have like cabinets with heads with tubes in them and turn it up and feel the feel your pants shaking and look at people in the front row with the look on their face like, oh, my God, is that Godzilla? You know, yeah. that's, that's, that's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Now, Nick and I were talking about that first album, Badlands 2. We were talking about... Um, just yesterday, I think we were talking, Nick, or today, about the commercial songs on that album. Uh-huh. Now, Dreams in the Dark, was that written for MTV? Because uh, that seems like that stands out from the rest of them. Yeah, that seems like as, the most commercial one on that album. Yeah. yeah. It was, and it was written with the attention of, you know, at the time we recorded half the record in L.A., and uh, they didn't hear the hit song that they wanted to hear, so they took us out of the studio and they flew Jake and Ray to New York to write songs. And that's where they wrote uh, High Wire and um, uh, Dreams in the Dark. And I want, uh, and maybe Winter's Call. I, I don't remember mm-hmm. right off the top of my head. So those songs were written there. And uh, Dreams in the Dark was written to kind of appease the record company. And I'm sure MTV as well. Um, and it's probably the most, what's well, for sure the most commercial song on that record and along with the song on voodoo highway the last time it's probably the one of the two most commercial songs we ever wrote although 
um, while I do think it is has a commercial, slight commercial bent to it, it still sounds like us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, great song. It, it's great. not. Go ahead. No, I was, just saying, I was just saying it was a great song. Even you know, even though it was a little more commercial than the others. Well, it, it's not a three-minute song. It has a big guitar solo in it. There's some yeah. changes. In it. it has a kind of off-the-wall bass line in the intro, and then mm-hmm. in the rest of the song, which. You know, that wasn't the way things were being done at that time, but that's the way that we were doing it. So that would be kind of like Badlands version of being commercial. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so I we, mean, I like the song. We hardly ever played it live. Yeah. Yeah. How come? Because we played it so many times to make the video that, you know, we did a 34 hour video shoot of playing that song a million times in a row in mm. 34 hours. And I think at that point, Jake was just sick of it. Yeah. Just over it. And I, I, well, I, I think it's a great song. I think, and I may be wrong. Jake just thought other songs, we're going to play 45 minutes. You know, we, when we were playing the, the, you know, headlining clubs or theaters, we played it, but in great white, when we were with great white and Tesla, we might've played it a handful of times. And we used to get some blowback from that, you know, sure. why you guys didn't play dreams in the dark. Why not? And, you know, because yeah. we don't like it, right? We're sick of it, or whatever. So, um, you know, when I was in Red Dragon Cartel, we actually played it. And, oh, did you? And, uh, yeah, it was actually pretty fun to play. Yeah. I had to learn it. <laughs> yeah, relearn it. I had to learn how to play it. <laughs> so, after the, after that tour, and you wrapped up, and going into the second album, um, how were things at that point with management and the band? We hated our management, and at that point, we didn't trust them anymore. So, uh, we fired them and it was the beauty of it. Jake let me do it. Did he? So I, yeah, I got to call up Paul O'Neill and tell him he was fired and he wasn't too happy. Now we just go ahead. Didn't he at that time in between those albums, isn't that when Ray got sick? Ray got pneumonia when we were on the road. Cause he, we would play in, Pittsburgh in the snow it'd be snowing out and I'd walk outside to go to the bus and Ray'd be standing out in the snow wearing his soaking wet leather pants no shirt and no shoes mm-hmm. I'd go dude what are you doing I'm just cooling off hey this is bad for you hey I'm from New Jersey dude don't tell me how to handle the weather <laughs> okay and sure enough he got pneumonia which you know we were supposed to go back on the road we were gonna be off for Christmas for a couple weeks and then go back on the road. And there was talk about us either maybe opening for Van Halen or ACDC. So, you know, we had, we still hadn't released Highwire as a single, which was supposed to be on the list to go. And we were definitely going to release Seasons as kind of the battle sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And Ray getting sick and having to be in the hospital kind of slowed our momentum. So rather than us start all, all over again, and, and there had been, you know, we were going to change drummers at that point, too. <clears throat> so with Ray being down, we were going to change drummers. Things weren't going working out with Eric the way that, you know, they wanted it to work out. And um, and I'm, I don't really want to get into it. I mean, Eric's sure. a great drummer and, you know, it kind of is what it is. And Eric's a, a big rock star worth millions of dollars. And I manage a guitar store. So who am I to say anything? Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, rather than get a new drummer, rehearse a new drummer and try to go back out on the road in the summer, we decided to get a new drummer, which was Jeff. We, re- we auditioned drummers, got a new drummer, rehearsed and then started writing a second record. And then we were going to capitalize on our thing there. Well, 
guess what? When you fire your manager and he's one third of the record label, mm-hmm. now you have now see. And then again, kiddies, don't have your manager <laughs> be part of the record company it's all because problems. now we were we were screwed. So they yanked all our tour support. So we're going to go out and, and they had to let us make Voodoo Highway. We had a for sure two record deal, but they decided that because we were bad, we were bad men, and we didn't follow any rules that now we're not going to give you any tour support. So what do you think of them apples? Mm. So we said, yeah, really? So we rented two cars and a truck, a, a, a cab over truck, and we booked our own tour. Oh, man. And, I, and we went out on the road and actually came home after six or seven months of touring on our own with no record company support at all. We actually came home with money. <laughs> yeah. What a concept. Well, I mean, you still had the music. You still had, you know, most of the band, and and you guys are Badlands. Well, I like Voodoo Highway better than I like uh, the first record. I like them both, but mm-hmm. if I was going to have to pick one, I would pick Voodoo Highway. But if I was going to have to pick one, I'd pick Dusk. Dusk is my favorite of the three. So yeah, Dusk was a good album. Yeah. Now, was that just an album Dusk of uh, demo? Live album, Dusk Studio with no overdubs. Yeah. Dusk was. Yes, Doug Dusk was demos. Okay, that we did. That we Jake and I didn't want to go do. We were going on the road a couple of days later, and, we, and all of a sudden we find out we're going to the studio to do demos for Sony. And we're like, I don't want to go in the studio. We're going on the road because the way we did stuff is when it was time to write songs, we wrote songs. When it was time to record, we recorded. When it's time to go on tour, we toured. Yeah. We didn't write songs on the road. Jake didn't write. We didn't write in our hotel room. We just. You know, we we did everything in a in a certain sequence, and so out of the blue, now we're we're going on the road in like three days. But now we got to go in the studio, and lay down these ten tracks or whatever it was. So what happened was, Jake and I showed up. We were in bad moods. Uh, we had guns because we Jake and I always took pistols on the road with us just to go shooting when there was nothing to do. You know, go to the shooting range. Uh-huh. So he was showing me his new guns. I was showing him mine. The engineer was having a fit because Jake and I have three or four handguns apiece in the studio. Oh, and he's like, going, what the hell's going on here? And so we went in there, got our sound. Jake got his sound in five minutes. I got mine in five minutes. The engineer wanted to work on our tones. We said, no, no, we like these tones. Just record. We recorded every song one time. We were so tight and we were so ready to play that we didn't make a mistake in them. Ray sang them live while we did them. There's not an overdub on there other than uh, when we mixed it in the late 90s. We added a background vocal in Sun Red Sun because Jake had always wanted to have that in there. Uh And he wanted to hear what it would sound like. So Jake and I went in when we mixed it and tracked the backing vocal together. Other than that, there's not. it's, it's as honest a statement as you can get from a band that's putting out an actual record in my opinion it's live there's no overdubs it's all done one thing after another race singing live he doesn't even have lyrics to all the songs he's kind of making them up as he goes along and that tells you what kind of musicality the band had and what kind of shape we were in you know we were in tip-top fighting shape because that stuff that you know we didn't realize at the time when we heard the, the mixes like they sent them to us on the road to listen to we were like this is actually pretty damn good right yeah, I have Badlands of Voodoo Highway on a CD, but I don't mm-hmm. I don't have Dusk and it, you, was it ever released or no? Yeah, we sold it to a Japanese record company 
you can probably find them on Amazon. I don't know how expensive they are, but it's Jake and I <coughs> remixed it. Don't mind me. I got, I don't have a sickness. I got water down the wrong tube. Yeah, um, Jake and I remixed it uh, for the record company and made it sound more cohesive. You know, the demos were a, a little, you know, kind of scattered as far as the mixes and we kind of mixed it. I'd mix all day and then he'd come in and change whatever I did. Uh, and then whatever he, you know, if there was another way he heard it and yeah. then he'd mix all night and then I'd come in and listen to it. I didn't change anything. He did. I actually like the way Jake does the mixes. So um, it was never an issue for me. Yeah. So um, now, Nick, you have that album, correct? Weren't yeah, I didn't. Have yeah, I didn't know it was out until maybe 10 years ago. And as soon as I found out, I bought it. And what a great album that is, too. Yeah. I, I love that record. It's like yeah. I said, live. There's no rhythm guitars during the solos, so it's re- it's like real power trio. It's it's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I'm gonna hunt it down. I need to get yeah, that it's, one. It's good. Yeah. So then, what happened at the end of Batlands? Uh, Ray Ray um, was gonna go off and play you know maybe play with lynch or whoever he was whatever he was going to do and he wanted to go back to new york jeff was kind of go do his thing and jake was talking about me and him maybe starting another band which i was interested in but i wanted to move uh back here to phoenix um my son was a was born i wanted to buy a house here in phoenix i couldn't afford to buy one in la Mm -hmm. and i was going to move back to raise my kid here around my parents and my in-laws and jake was like well how are we going to do this band and i said well i'll come out you know yeah but it just wasn't that wouldn't have worked that way so he kind of you know made a solo record he made fine pink pink mist and he started playing on other people's records and he kind of then got off the grid for a bit and i played on a bunch of other people's records as well but in the end i just didn't want to do the traveling i wanted to stay home and be a dad sure so i i got off the grid too you know i i had two kids i was happy uh being a parent i was happy coaching both my my son and my daughter are both athletes and i coached them in all the sports they played in and i was really happy you know being around my wife and kids so i really wasn't doing anything i was playing in cover bands here in phoenix and jake Mm -hmm. was just really kind of off the grid well then he kind of resurfaced um and did uh the first Red Dragon Cartel record, and uh, we kind of reconnected. We we didn't talk a whole lot over we over about a ten year period. We didn't talk a whole lot, mm-hmm. and um, I would go to Vegas to do baseball tournaments with my son, and I would call him when I was in Vegas, and uh, we never got together, but we would have these long conversations. Mm-hmm. And so when he got Red Dragon Cartel together. You know, he used the guy that owned the studio, uh, Ron, to, who's not a bass player, but he, he wanted to play bass on it. So Jake said, yeah, sure, whatever. But when they were going out, he wasn't happy with the guy's bass playing or the guy in general. Mm-hmm. So he just, he called me and said, dude, I, I want you to do this Red Dragon Cartel show. We're going to do one in Phoenix at this big club here, and I want you to play bass in it. <clears throat> and I said, <clears throat> okay, so... I had not actually seen Jake since probably the late nineties and we're talking, this is now 2014. Yeah. And so he showed up in Phoenix. I arranged uh, for us to rehearse at Michael Beck, who's the singer 
in uh, Kings of Dust, my band, mm -hmm. Kings of Dust, he has a studio. So we rehearsed in that studio. Jake and I hadn't seen each other in all that time. Uh, I don't know, what, 15 years. And um, he came in and he had Jonas playing drums and Darren singing. And we came in and we just, you know, the, the MO for Jake is you just jam. He'll come in with a couple riffs and we'll jam for however long, however long it works. Mm -hmm. And we ended up jamming on a couple riffs with time changes and, and, you know, different progressions for about 45 minutes. And it was like, it was like we had played the day before. It was like we hadn't missed a beat. Yeah. You know, and uh, he looked at me when we got done. He goes, ah, that's what I call jamming. <laughs> and so I did the show with them. I had a great time. There's a lot of people there. I hadn't really done anything in Phoenix of any note in quite a while. So I kind of got kind of back on the grid even here in phoenix and then after the show he said i want you to be in the band and i said i can't really do it right now i have a commitment to coach summer camp for uh, i worked at a place called arizona world of baseball and i did the summer camps for them it's a nine-week summer camp for kids five to 13 and i was the director of it i'd been working there about four years mm -hmm. I, said, I said when when that's over in august if you still don't like your bass player call me up so he called me on august 1st okay are you gonna join, are you gonna join the band i said yeah i'll join it my kids were grown at that time and they'd uh -huh. never actually seen me in that setting and i thought this would be kind of a cool thing for them to see me yeah red dragon you know being on the national stage a little bit again and i really didn't understand i i misjudged how popular that would be with uh, you know the jake and greg back together again half of badlands blah 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 and it really kind of just took off and put me kind of back on the grid in a big way. And I really liked being in the band. Um, I had a good time. I enjoyed the shows. I liked the guys. Uh, Jake's my bro. And it was it was awesome. But then uh, I was sick the whole time we did the tour. Mm -hmm. And in the spring of 2015, I quit because I uh, came down with cancer. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. So then I, they, you know, they got Anthony and, you know, they moved on and, and that's all great. And, you know, I like Anthony and I think they did a great job. Everything's great. And Jake and I are still friends and Anthony and I are friends and everything's groovy. But I had to go through this four months of cancer treatment and uh, deal with that because I had stage four cancer. Mm. So um, and I, I lost, I went from 195, I was like a big bodybuilder, weightlifter dude, to 121 in four months. I looked like an 85-year-old man in four months. Man. But that allowed me to, uh, you know, I always had Kings of Dust going under different names. Me and Michael Beck, the singer in Kings of Dust, <laughs> we went through different musicians. And so even if I had stayed in Red Dragon Cartel, which I would have, I would have still done Kings of Dust. We would have done the record. We would have put it out. Um, and I really like the band the way that it is. Um, this is the best version of it, in my opinion, with Jimmy Taft, an amazing drummer on drums, Ryan McKay, great guitarist, singer, songwriter. Uh, he, he had, him, and, him and I have something in common, like Jake and I did, is I can mention some obscure 70s band that I want to hear a guitar sound like, and he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's something mm -hmm. that I always enjoy with Jake. Jake could say, you know, I really hear the bass line to I'll be creeping by free in that. No, no problem. Yeah. I'll just be able to play it. <laughs> so, um, 
And then Michael Beck, great singer, great lyricist. So it's a really fun band. We're really all tight, really good friends. Um, and That's so awesome. I would have still done that even with uh, Red Dragon Cartel. And because I got sick, it allowed me to, when I did feel like playing again, and it took a, about a year and a half, it allowed me to channel all my energies into Kings of Dust right. and put that record out. Right. Um, now, you, you beat cancer. Is that correct? I did. I did. I kicked it right that in the ball. That balls. is awesome. Good deal. You know, Nick and I uh, just recently lost a buddy. He was actually a drummer in my band about about four months ago, I want to say. He he lost his battle with pancreatic cancer. Sorry to hear uh, that, man. Yeah. I always tell people cancer ain't for sissies. Yeah. But he was telling me when he was going through it that it was the hardest thing he's ever dealt with. It's a weird thing. Um, I'm assuming he had stage four cancer. When yeah. someone tells mm-hmm. you you have stage four cancer, I mean, when the guy told me I had stage four cancer, I went, oh, how many stages are there? Right. He said, he said four. I went, oh, that's not good then. He goes, no. I said, what do I do? He goes, eat anything you want. Go on all the trips you want to go on because you probably have between eight and 11 months to live. Mm. Oh, wow. And my exact response, yeah, fuck you. I said, I got a 15-year-old daughter, 16-year-old daughter. I said, I ain't going anywhere. What do I have to do to beat this? Right. He said, well, we'd have to go have surgery and get your lymph nodes removed because I had tongue cancer. I had cancer in my mouth. Mm. My big mouth had finally gotten me. <laughs> Got you. And so I, you know, I went through, I said, I'll follow whatever the rules are. So I had all my lymph nodes on my left side taken out. And then I had 41 doses of radiation in my mouth and 15 chemos. And I went exactly by, I'm not really a by the book guy, as you can tell, mm. but I went by the book on this. Yeah. So yeah. I've been well, cancer free for, for over five years. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and my condolences to your to your friend. That sucks. Yeah, man. Yeah. But good, man. Um, so now Kings of Dust is still going. Kings of Dust is still going strong. We put out the first record because Kings of Dust, if there's one thing we're all about, it's timing. So we thought we'd put out our first record on March 13th, which is the same day they decided it would be a pandemic. Ah, good timing. So, yeah. Yeah, we are we are the kings of we we couldn't if you put one pile of dog poop in a square in a five mile square field, we'd manage to step in it. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> so I mean, if, so yeah, it put pushed everything back. But I mean, what is the plan for Kings of Dust going forward? Well, we had a bunch of touring dates offered to us. We had like maybe uh, what was it, three or no? I don't know how many weeks through Oklahoma and te- Texas and Oklahoma. There was some East Coast shows. Um, there was a potential uh, trip to Japan because of my past resume there. And then maybe even a couple festivals in Europe. And we even were possibly going to be able to be involved in a Monsters of Rock thing, which would have been pretty cool. Um, and all that went out the, out the window. Kings of Dust has never played a live show, ever. Really? So, yeah. So, I mean... We were like, uh, at the time, they shut everything down. So we never even played here in Phoenix. We were going to go do a show in Tucson with a DJ buddy of mine, Mike Gobby, uh, has connections down there. And we are going to open for someone down there. And that went right out the window. So rather than do like some live video nonsense, whatever, I, I just said, look, let's just wait till whenever this is. And instead of just rehearsing the same songs we've been 
doing because some of these songs are seven years old. I, I mean, there's a couple songs on the record, like an ocean or ugly that were written in the very first iteration of the band. And so um, there are some newer songs on there as well, but I didn't want to keep playing them. Uh, I played them enough in rehearsal as we went through musicians, you know, changing drummers and guitar players. Mm-hmm. So I said, let's just write another record. So we have about a dozen songs record uh, written for the second Kings of Dust record. Uh-huh. And the plan is uh, we've actually taken off. We took off December and January. So I think we're going to uh, Michael Beck, who's a he owns a studio and he's a pretty well-known producer. He has a studio that he works out of in, in Nebraska where he's from. And he's going there for like three weeks in February uh, to do a whole bunch of bands. And then when he gets back, I think we're going to start, we're going to finish writing the rest of the songs. We want to have about 15 songs. And so I think we have 11 and a Mm -hmm. half. So we're going to write a few more and then uh, we're not going to do, you know, the first record has 60 plus minutes of music on it. We're not going to do that this time, but there'll be a good 45, 50 minutes of music. And we'll pick, you know, eight or nine songs and record them. Because our songs, if you've heard the record, they're not three minutes long. They, I follow right in that Badlands uh, uh, job description of I just write what, you know, we write what we want. We play mm-hmm. what we want. And if it's five minutes long, it's five minutes. And if it's six, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. it's all gone in six minutes. Right. So if you don't like it, move on to what you do like. Right. And fortunately, a lot of people have liked it. And we've gotten, you know, the reviews have been positive. All the response has been really off the hook. I'm, we're very uh, surprised and grateful for that. So the second record will be a progression of the first record. It won't sound exactly the same way. Uh, you know, the songs won't sound the same. We won't be uh, rehashing any ideas other than whatever pops into my head mm-hmm. and uh and ryan's head and jimmy's head and michael's head and we'll uh put that record out probably hopefully the end of summer and i don't think there's going to be a whole lot of touring till then anyway and then when we go on the road eventually um we'll get to play two records yeah. we all have jobs i have a guitar store that i run bizarre guitar and drums in phoenix Bizarre um, guitar. If you live in Phoenix, guitar, go check it out. Shameless, shameless plug. And then Michael has the studio sound vision. Jimmy has a, a a job that he does, and then Ryan works in the guitar store with me. Okay. Okay. So he gets a double whammy. He's got to be in a band with me, and then also work in a store that I am in charge. Oh, the poor guy. So you're his boss. The poor guy. <laughs> Never ends. He he has worse luck than anyone I know. He's got the double whammy of being around me. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure he's having a blast. I don't know. I I see that we go through a lot of Kleenex because he seems to be crying a lot. <laughs> Let me ask you this: Would you uh, ever consider a Badlands uh, get together with another singer? Um, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But if Jake called me, uh, it's really his call, mm-hmm. and he's always said it's not going to happen. But if Jake called me and said, "Hey, are you interested?" I would be interested in whatever. I love playing with Jake. Uh, yeah. There's a mu- musical symmetry. Uh, um, there's a kind of a Vulcan mind meld thing that goes on between him and I. Um, there's unspoken sort of musical something. Uh-huh. And uh, so I really enjoy playing with him. I would still have Kings of Dust. Sure. Um, but 
I would definitely go, whatever Jake wanted to do, I would do it. If he wanted to do Jakey Lee Does Badlands and went on the road and played a bunch of Badlands songs with whoever, and he called me and said, hey, are you interested? I would be up for whatever Jake is, you know, whatever he has got going. Yeah. Um, I mean, if he called me now and said, hey, I'm doing something, I want to play bass on a couple tracks, I'd be sure. He, he knows that. I mean, uh, we don't talk about music a whole lot when we do talk. Mm-hmm. But he knows. I mean, we're bros. He knows I'm there for him. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. So yes, de- yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. All right, Greg. Well, one more question: Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Uh, I think the Yankees. I think the Yankees got a good shot. I guess. You know who I wanted to be in it. I, I guess that they're not going to win it. So I guess the Buffalo Bills aren't going to get no. to be in it. No, I don't know. That's a hard call because uh, uh, I'm going to go. When I was a kid, my two favorite AFL football teams were the Raiders and the Chiefs. So I'm going to go oh. Chiefs. Oh, you know what? We need to hang up this call right now. Then <laughs> I knew that. I knew that was coming. He's a big Bucks fan. I just like you know Bruce Arians coached the Cardinals and so I mean he had some success here till you know the ownership here burned him out yeah so I think it's going to be a good game I hope um, so I am I am not a Tom Brady is the greatest of all time guy because my guy's Joe Montana and, and now keep in mind as I'm saying that my son's signed Joe Montana jersey is hanging in a frame behind my head here on the uh-huh. wall so uh I'm. I think Joe Montana is the greatest of all time because he was four and zero oh in Super Bowls. Yeah. But uh, I do see where uh, it would. It's going to make for an interesting game because Tom Brady, you know, Tampa Bay's never been this close before, and here they are. And Tom Brady had a big hand to do with it. And Bruce Arians treated him like crap and bad mouthed him in the press and the whole nine yards. And the guy had enough uh, resilience to you know still do it yeah so it'll be it'll be a good game I, I have to admit it'll be a good game i'm for the chiefs but i wouldn't be surprised to see it go the other way there you go that's a better yeah. answer that's my honest answer <laughs> since the yankees can't be in it. yeah the yankees aren't there <laughs> all right greg well listen man it was great talking to you really appreciate you taking the time well thanks for uh thanks for hitting me up and i appreciate the support on Kings of Dust. Uh, by the way, if anyone is interested, you can get it off of uh, our Facebook page. Uh, there's a Kings of Dust Facebook page. We also have a website, kod.band. You can get the disc. We are on Apple Music and iTunes. And so you can get it there. And uh, if you get it, find me on Facebook, anybody out there, and tell me that you. Uh, like it and uh, then we'll be friends <laughs> there you go I'll, I'll put the links in the uh, description of this podcast so people that I are, pre- yeah i appreciate that i appreciate yeah. that a lot and then be aware for kings of dust two t-o-o okay okay hey you know what speaking of uh when you said itunes i did want to ask you real quick about the badland stuff that's not out is that you think it'll ever get out on digital or no well because we don't own the rights to it in atlantic yeah. records hates our guts you don't think you'll get and it back? I don't know what the statute of limitations are. I think pro- probably because we never recouped mm-hmm. the amount of money uh, that, again, there's no way of us knowing 
what exactly went on sure. again you know when your manager is part of the record company blah 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 and then now paul o'neill's gone so there's no way of knowing yeah i don't know i mean it's not a big deal to me for the fans i know it is and i wish i wish for the fans that they could get it mm-hmm. i don't know where i don't i don't know where jake stands on it i think jake would probably tell you and i, I i'm kind of taking a liberty here that it kind of is what it is yeah and, and uh, there's not really a whole lot that we can do about it. And to be perfectly honest, I don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about it. I yeah. Mean, uh, I mean, what do you yeah. make off that? Right. Nothing really. Nothing. I mean, I have a gold record somewhere that Atlantic records should be giving us, but I don't think we're going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I just thought I'd ask that. I wanted to ask that and I almost forgot, but uh, luckily yeah, I, I don't know the actual, uh, um, whole, the details of the whole thing. There's a bunch of different camps on it and, you know, I'm, I'm not one of the powers that be as far as who makes those decisions. While I was in the band um, and an equal member of the band, Jake has the call on it. So I kind of just leave that up to him. And if he calls me someday and says, hey, this got sorted out, I'll be like, cool. Yeah. Yeah. OK. All right, then. Well, listen, you have a great night and we'll be looking forward to that new Kings of Dust and uh, go Bucks. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I appreciate yeah. it. All Thanks, right, Greg. Greg. All right, I'll talk to you later. See you, man. Take care. Bye. All right. That's all for this week. Join us next week for another episode of the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast listening platforms.